Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. I want to welcome you to episode 38 of Chris's on Infinite Earths here at the Chris and Reggie channel. What I've got for you today is, uh, well, kind of a special episode, I guess. Uh, this was originally supposed to be the uh, Thanksgiving episode of Remarvel. Um, a lot of listeners will remember Remarvel as that uh, show I was doing to try to recapture my appreciation for Marvel Comics by sort of forcing myself to read and uh, discuss them. And uh, this episode was supposed to fall right around Thanksgiving, maybe on Thanksgiving or the day after. Um, it features a very special issue that, you know, has a lot to do with Thanksgiving, and it always reminds me of Thanksgiving. Uh, it also reminds me of some other things that we're going to discuss as we uh, move along today, but uh, it just never came out. Um, uh, last fall, I was very dutifully um, putting out content, uh, several different shows, launching several different ideas, and uh, it all kind of just fell off. Um, a lot of you are... You know, familiar with the reasons as to why a lot of these uh, these ventures didn't really uh, you know bloom into anything, but uh, this episode in particular has kind of uh, it's kind of wound up being like an albatross around my neck, if that's even the right phrase. Uh, it's a story that I both really want to share, but at the same time I don't want to share it all that much. Uh, it's not like it's anything huge, but. Uh, it's just become sort of a roadblock for me. It's um, it's like I can't do anything until this one's out of the way. Uh, this was originally going to be like the return episode uh, a couple of episodes back, which turned out to be the, uh, the Batman and Harold episode. Um, I mentioned that I had another idea for that one, but I felt it was too heavy, and uh, this episode might... Uh, be a little heavy as we uh, move forward, and I wanted to keep it light for the return, so that's why we looked at Batman and his uh, his pal Harold. So, um, what we've got today is a look at one of my very favorite issues of a comic book ever published. Um, this is Uncanny X Men number three hundred and eight. Uh, came out in early, oh, I'm sorry, came out in late nineteen ninety three with a early nineteen ninety four cover date, but. Uh, that's another reason why I kind of held off on this one, since this issue is just so important to me. Um, not only did I chicken out of telling the story or the anecdote that I wanted to share, I also chickened out uh, as I was afraid that I would do this issue a disservice. Uh, to me, like the perfect uh, podcast for Uncanny X-Men number 308 would just be me on loop for two hours saying, go read Uncanny X-Men number 308 over and over and over again, because... It's a very special issue. It's a very important issue. And it really informed the way that I saw, that I viewed uh, the X-Men and comics and uh, the potential for superhero comics uh, as, as drama and as um, comfort food, I suppose, uh, going forward. So this is a very, very important story for me. It's uh, the reason why... Uh, Scott Lobdell uh, will always get a pass from me. Uh, anything he writes, I'll be there to check out, um, or at least buy, because <laughs> I'm not so good about reading the new stuff these days, but I am always buying it to support him. Uh, I, owe, I, I owe a lot of my fandom to him, and this issue in particular, so I will always support his, uh, his creative endeavors here. Uh, just a little bit of housekeeping before we go you know, into the 
the anecdote and the uh, synopsis. Uh, I did mention this was going to be a Remarvel episode, but it is coming out as a Chris's on Infinite Earths episode. Uh, Remarvel as a concept is kind of moot at this point. Um, as mentioned a few moments ago, that was my way of forcing myself to read uh, Marvel comics um, to you know regain my appreciation for them and uh, maybe try to get over myself and my uh, my very strange uh, <laughs> anti-Marvel temper tantrum. Uh, if you're following along on, well, with any of my creative, uh, creative commentary endeavors, not creative at all, uh, you'll, you'll know that there is a very heavy Marvel focus at this point, which, you know, renders, uh, a project where I'm trying to rediscover Marvel as redundant. It's, uh, unnecessary. So, uh, I figure everything going forward here, or most of my solo, um, exploits will be under the Chris's on Infinite Earths label from this point on. And, uh, you know, maybe as a tribute to Marvel, I can use a little bit of voodoo math and uh, renumber those re-Marvel episodes as Chris's on Infinite Earths episodes so we can uh, we can get to some milestone episodes a bit quicker. You know, that seems to be in the Marvel spirit. So uh, maybe we'll do that. Maybe we won't. I don't know. I am finally familiarizing myself with... Uh, with Podbean, uh, we've been under Podbean for about five years now, and I've never bothered to actually, you know, get in under the hood and try to figure out what I could do with it. Mostly because I was afraid I was going to break something. Um, I, not the most technically or digitally savvy fella out there, so every time I click a button, whether it says publish or submit or delete or whatever, I think I'm breaking something, and. Uh, uh, for the longest time, I was afraid to do anything, um, but now I'm at, at the point where I think I am a little bit more uh, adventurous uh, <laughs> or, or realistic in the uh, idea that there ain't nothing to break. I can't break anything. Um, I've got backups of everything, so if anything does go missing, I've got backups, so I can fix whatever. So digging into Podbean, I'm discovering that they do have... Um, Ways of formatting or ways of listing your episodes as uh, as being in like seasonal blocks, so you can like have act you know disparate seasons. Um, so I'm trying to figure out if I can have each one of the shows at the channel be its own dedicated season to maybe make it a little bit easier to traverse for a listener, uh, new and old. Um, if anybody has any you know insight. As to how the seasons work on Podbean Please don't hesitate to rattle my cage here Let me know before I spend You know, the better part of two or three weeks um, Trying to refigure You know, 350 episodes that are on the channel Into seasons that may or may not work But, uh So yeah, if, if all of a sudden you start seeing a whole lot of new episodes Popping up on your feed They're probably just uh, Renumbered or retitled episodes That are already there And, uh Certainly, feel feel free to listen to them if if you haven't before, or if you'd like to listen to them again. I think that'd be really fantastic. I'll, I'll never turn down a click. So, if you want to check them out, they are there. But uh, today we're gonna get this uh, this uncanny X Men three hundred and eight albatross off my back. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna get through this story finally. Um, you know, speaking. Of the albatrosses here If even I'm using the right term I think it is I'm sure I'll find out 
uh, these episodes, these uh, solo shows, um, I've sort of gotten it in my head that if uh, if I put out a show and I'm not, and when all is said and done, like I don't feel like I've just poured my guts all over the table here, I feel like I'm doing the listeners a disservice, which, I don't know, it's kind of a, a blessing and a curse, I suppose, because it makes it a lot more difficult to... To really do these shows as often as I'd like to Because they are just so draining They're very, very draining um, But it's also a blessing in that uh, I still have this desire to do it You know, and I enjoy doing it It's very cathartic for me And I, I hope that it's relatable A lot of these stories Some of them probably not But some of them, you know I think there is a, a way to generalize A lot of uh, anecdotes and uh, experiences To... To be reflective of, uh, you know, something that maybe you or someone you know has experienced that you can relate to on on one level or another. So we will endeavor to push on. But uh, let's get into this uh, this little story here. Um, now, Uncanny X Men number three hundred and eight uh, is one of those books that I can remember exactly where I was the first time I read it, and uh, it was in the back of my parents' Ford Aerostar. It was a Friday night, and I was reading it by the light of a uh, of a Game Boy lamp <laughs> because it was nighttime, and uh, you know you can't drive around with the interior lights on and stuff. So I had my Game Boy light that uh, that I was reading this comic to, and on Friday nights, my folks would uh, we would eat out, we or we would get food from outside. Uh, we would uh, my my parents we would go into. Uh, Central Islip uh, we, we lived in Oakdale, uh, Long Island at that point And we'd go into Central Islip Because my parents enjoyed uh, And I always say this word wrong And as a New Yorker I will always say this word wrong They like gyros They they, they really <laughs> dug gyros And once a week they would go get their gyros And we would go with them um, And for whatever reason I, I, I don't eat gyros the, the thought of eating like Warm white sauce uh, Doesn't Done, done really isn't palatable to me I can't do it But uh, it would take a while So like my father would go inside And he'd order them and he'd be there for like 20 minutes And uh, that's where I read uh, Uncanny X-Men number 308 And I remember just being so moved by this issue Because it uh, it basically checked off every box That I could ever hope to have checked off uh, First it happens on Thanksgiving When Thanksgiving has always been my very favorite holiday um, second, it it showed a different side of the X-Men to me I, I didn't have the luxury of coming in under the Claremont run I came in under, you know, Scott Lobdell and uh, Fabian Niciesa And a lot of folks know that because there's I've got like a, you know, 15-hour show that's dedicated to it uh, Hopefully every month from this point on So that's kind of been my entry point So this issue was very, very uh, unique in that it didn't feel like an issue of a superhero comic It was more uh, soap opera Which I suppose tenured fans of the X-Men would be used to And this wouldn't really stand out as anything unique And in fact may have looked like a pale imitation of what came before But uh, to me this was brand new stuff This was a brand new tone And it uh, it was one that really, really affected me And uh I read it twice in a row, which is not something I did terribly often. I would read comics multiple times, but never twice in a row. 
And, uh, you know, as soon as I was finished with this one, I flipped right back to the beginning and started over again. It really, really affected me. Um, now, this would be... This, I, this might actually be like my very first, you know, uh, comics comfort food book. It uh, really just became so much of what, uh, what I expected comics to be. And I'd only been reading the X-Men for a couple of years at this point, but this was the first time I actually felt like they were real people. You know, I felt like these were actual characters and not just costumes. Um, and it made me want to know just about everything I could uh, about them. Um, really powerful issue and very powerful experience. And this was an issue that I would come back to time and again to uh, revisit um, and it never failed to uh, just bring me right back to uh, that night in the back of the van, <laughs> reading it by the light of a, of a Game Boy lamp. Um, just such a wonderful feeling. Uh, all, all, you know, all encompassing wonderful feeling because this did come out early November, so there was that, you know, fall chill in the air, and it's just a very special time. Um, you know, the holidays are coming, but they're not over yet, so there's anticipation and excitement, and you know the family's going to be coming. There's just that weird, that's not weird, it's just this, uh, you know, feeling of um, warmth in a, in, a, in a pretty chilly time, and uh, very, very special time of year, and not just for me, I'm sure, but uh, for the purposes of this story and the purposes of this anecdote, yes, for me. Now <laughs> um, I would read this thing. Fairly often um, and, and this is, of course, a time where Instead of having, you know, tens of thousands of comics Like I do right now This is when I had, like, under a hundred So it wasn't, like, totally weird To reread things numerous times um, But, you know, as collections grow And as, uh, you know, the, the never-ending pile that you, uh, that you need to get through Or power through or read through Continues to grow or just fails to go away It becomes harder and harder to go back and revisit things So I hadn't read this issue in like 10 years You know, it, it just kind of It was always a very special issue to me But I hadn't revisited it And that was until uh, sometime in 2013 So it probably had been Um well over a decade since I read it. Um, I mean, it's been it would it would have been twenty years since it came out, just about. So it was probably a good ten fifteen years since I'd read it, and uh, I came across it um, while I was at work. Uh, I uh, I've told stories before about how I did windshield repair for a few years, and this was during that stint, um, and I was the only. Repair guy who got stuck working uh, Sundays So out of the entire Arizona uh, market I was the only guy working Sunday uh, It was more like a One of those things where um, You know, they announced that they're going to do stuff on Sundays At the, uh, you know, during a meeting And everybody says not it And I was the one that like forgot to or missed it <laughs> I was like sleeping when they when this came through so I was uh, assigned uh, Sundays. I, it was very interesting that uh, you come to find when the topic or the concept of working on a Sunday comes up, you find out just how many religious people you're working with. 
because everybody was suddenly like, no, no, I got church that day. And you know, they're full of it, but it's like, you're not going to question it. Um, and, and especially when, when these, uh, these proclamations from on high come out around uh, football season. That's uh, that's when everybody finds religion, and uh, you know can't get themselves out of bed on a Sunday morning to to do some work. Now that said, I'm the only guy out there, so instead of my you know my service area being like a 50 mile square block, it was now a like 300 mile square block. So if uh, someone needed a windshield repair three hours away, I was going out three hours to do a windshield repair. Um, it was a, it was one of those good and bad things. Um, you know, it, it stunk working Sundays uh, because when you work Sunday, you really don't have. When you work any weekend day, it's like you don't have a weekend. Um, you know, you have friends and family who are doing stuff on Saturdays and Saturday nights, and you can't. You know, you got to get up early the next day, so your your weekend is. You know, the first half of Saturday <laughs> That's your weekend And then uh, everything after that is just another day of the week um, But it was good in that uh, I was paired with a dispatcher who wanted to get home just as badly as I did So uh, it was usually an easier day uh, Despite all the miles I was putting on It was... Uh, well, not always But sometimes it was just less, uh, less jobs uh, overall And... Less possibility for late day jobs um, Working in any sort of service industry If you do, I don't know, if you do like air conditioning If you do carpet cleaning Anything that puts you on the road where you have to visit customers and stuff It's not unusual to, you know, get halfway through the day And you're thinking you're doing really great And you're kicking ass And you only have a couple jobs left And then all of a sudden, boop, boop, boop Three more jobs fall into your lap That you have to get done that afternoon It's, it's just part of the gig, unfortunately But on Sundays... Oh, the dispatcher that was working <laughs> really didn't want to deal with it. So the phones might go off a little bit early or or jobs that want to get done that day might get pushed off to the next day when we'd have a full staff. And I always appreciated that. <laughs> now, one day I was out far, probably about an hour and a half away from my house. And I came across a uh, record store that uh, that I would frequent when I was in the area, which wasn't terribly often since it was so far away. Um, but I did pop in there from time to time when, uh, you know, when circumstances and the stars aligned. I uh, I was going to call in before I went in there to see if there were any more jobs, but uh, I didn't want to know. So I figured I'm going to go burn a half hour in this record store, and uh, by the time I get out, it'll be too late for new jobs, so screw it. So I go inside, and... Uh, I've got one of those faces, it seems, that people think they know. It seems familiar to people. So this guy who works at the record store comes up to me, and he's like, Hey, hey, I, I got some stuff for you. And I'm like, okay. And somehow, I don't know if I just look like a guy who likes comic books, but he brought me over to this uh, this huge um, box, uh, this, uh, this set of boxes. He goes, we just got these in. They're library, uh, re- retired library books. And there was it was all these big, fat... Trades, trade paperbacks And uh, I never saw this guy before But somehow he knew I was there for comics I don't know, Maybe he was my, uh, my guardian angel, I don't know But uh, I go through these boxes And the thing about um, 
when you when you shop for used books, often you're going to find them at like half price, you know. So if it's a twenty dollar trade, you'll probably get it for ten if it's used. Uh, sometimes it'll be clearanced out for less than that. But the thing with the library uh, retirees was that they had, you know, they had like the the plastic, they had like the contact paper on them, and they 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 were very used uh, in in some some cases. So they would just mark these things at like one or two dollars. So you could get, you know, a thirty or forty dollar trade for like three bucks. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, if the spine looks good and the pages ain't stuck together, that's good enough for me. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't care if the uh, if there's a, if there's a scratch on the cover or if there's, you know, uh, the, maybe the back page has like a little tear on it to, for the way the library card thing was or the whatever they whatever they call that thing from the library. I don't even know if they still do that anymore. But uh, he brought me over to these boxes, and I was digging through, and I found a couple of X-Men trades uh, that I didn't even know existed. And uh, one of them was um, a skinning of souls, which was a uh, an Omega Red story, which parlayed into a Psylocke story. It, it came out in X-Men Volume 2 uh, following the Executioner Song storyline. And another one was uh, The Wedding of Cyclops and Phoenix, which I didn't know either of these were collected, ever. I don't really read the solicits very often because I find that they spoil things. Um, and so I just avoid them. And I didn't know that these had come out. And they'd come out a couple of years prior. But they were like two bucks each. And uh, I'm looking at the uh, the Wedding of Cyclops and Phoenix right now, and it is a $34.99 book. And I think I got it for like three bucks. And it looks great. looks in looks to be in perfect condition. It's you know a little dog-eared, but that's you know that that just comes with any book that you read. So I, I grabbed them, and uh, and I decided you know I'm gonna I'm gonna read these things. And the Wedding of Cyclops and Phoenix as a trade isn't one I'd recommend paying full or half price for. It's a pretty mishmashed collection. Um, it's full of things like X-Men Unlimited and the X-Men Annuals of the time, which were almost always garbage. Um, there's like what-ifs in there and pin-ups. It's n- not something I, I would recommend spending 35 or even like $15 on. Uh, if you come across it for 5 yeah, go for it. Uh, the issue we're talking about today is in there, and it uh, and that's more than worth 5 bucks in my opinion. But, uh, yeah, so I, I bought these books. <laughs> I'm taking the very scenic route here to uh, to get this story out, but uh, bought the books. You know that the day the day's work ended, I went home, and that night I decided I was gonna you know start reading through this uh, this wedding of Cyclops and Phoenix trade before bed, and uh, I skipped like the first half of it because it was all garbage. <laughs> it was all it's like I don't want to read about Empyrene in, in X-Men Annual 2 or I don't want to read any X-Men Unlimited it's just, you know, get me to what I'm here for uh, this seems like a no-brainer of a trade collection you know, it's all about Scott and Gene maybe give us some Scott and Gene issues maybe give us some, some you know, uh, some of their greatest hits give us, you know, the end of the Phoenix Saga give us, uh, give us you know, X-Factor number one where she comes back give us all that stuff but no, no, they give us just not not some great stuff. So I skip right to the issue we're going to discuss today, which is, of course, Uncanny X-Men number 308. I skip right to that one because I remembered how special that issue was to me. And I, uh, and I, I proceeded to read it. And when I finished, 
I had uh, my my wife had come to bed, and uh, after finishing reading this, I had to like bail out of the room. I had to get the hell out of the room, and like I'd like pretend I had to go to the bathroom or something because, for whatever reason, it. Uh, I started crying reading this thing, and which was weird. Um, like, and not just like, you know, the Durher man tears thing. This is like ugly, full on ugly crying, bawling, just like got to get out of the room. So I don't have to explain this situation, you know? So I, I bail and I'm just in the bathroom and I'm crying. I'm like, I don't, what is going on here? I, I, I don't know what's going on here. And I mean, it is a touching issue, but it's never done that before. And I didn't understand it. Uh, and, and you know, I, I'm I'm a fairly soft touch uh, when it comes to a lot of things. Um, you know, you show me a commercial of like a guy and his dog, and I'm and I'm lost. You know, uh, those old long distance phone commercials. It's the very cliche things. Um, but for whatever reason, this issue of X Men just really hit me this on this particular night, and I couldn't figure out why. And uh, so I did what any good, you know, guilty Catholic would do. I, I buried it. I, <laughs> I didn't address it. I, uh, I just let it kind of subside. Didn't really think about it too much going forward. And, uh, you know, it would, it, would, it would sometimes, you know, get back into my mind. It would sometimes creep back in, but it would, I would never really dwell on it. I would never really think about why I was affected in the in such a way, and that was until um, a couple of years later, in uh, 2015, I started uh, a different job. I was uh, working as a merchandiser for Hasbro Toys, and uh, I've I've mentioned this a time or two. And uh, uh, one of uh, I mentioned this during a recent episode of uh, Moratory Mondays, and uh, our, our good friend uh, Mark uh, Green Lantern HG had asked if I had any stories about my time with Hasbro. Unfortunately, uh, despite, you know, working for the company that, uh, you know, made G.I. Joe and the Transformers and uh, has the Marvel license, it was a very boring job. <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot to it. Um, <clears throat> the only anecdote I really have that would uh, maybe give you some insight into, into me is uh, when I was hired, um, I was given an interview at a, uh, at a Walmart. Um, because Walmart was one of the places that the merchandisers would service, uh, you know, try to, uh, try to, you know, discuss getting, be- you know, more better, you know, better placement for, uh, Hasbro toys and Hasbro products. And, uh, also doing things like, uh, I remember the, the pie face game was a big deal. Uh, it was, it was just coming out at the time when I started, so... We were also working with uh, whipped cream companies to like get, make coupons happen, and we would put coupons on whipped cream cans because that's part of the pie face game. So it was a lot of that sort of stuff. Very, very boring um, and very, very procedural. The, the magic of working for a toy company, <laughs> really, uh, there isn't any. Uh, at the end of the day, it's just a, a job. But uh, this was a job that I had applied for um, probably since about 2006, Every year they would, uh, every like late summer they would, uh, they would promote that they were uh, looking for seasonal help for that Christmas season. And the Christmas season in the toy company, 
uh, the toy industry, I guess, starts in late August. So, I mean, you're in Christmas mode from the end of the summer through Christmas, which is is kind of fun, I guess. That's kind of cool because it's just this constant ramping up to, you know, the greatest time of the year. Um, so there was that. So I'd been applying for this job since 2006, and I'd, I'd never even get as much as a callback uh, from whoever, you know. It wasn't until 2015 that I'd finally get a call. And uh, I was told, and I, and it's one of those weird things where you don't even know if it's legit. You just get a call, it's like, yeah, meet me at this Walmart tomorrow. It's like, huh? Okay. So <laughs> I go, and I meet this, uh, this fella at the Walmart uh, in a really shady part of town. And uh, he's like, let's take a walk. I'm like, okay. And then don't worry, this isn't going in a uh, in a wrestling direction here. Uh, he walks me through the toy aisles, and he's like, what do you know about our products? And uh, as a you know boy, I said, uh, well, I know you know GI Joe, the Transformers, and I and I said, I think you guys have the Marvel stuff now. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he, and, and he's like, we all you know the big one now is Star Wars because the Star Wars movies were coming out. And he's like, we got the Star Wars. Uh, Deal and because I guess they absorbed Kenner all those years ago. A lot of stuff I don't know all that much about, but uh, I told him, you know, about the Marvel stuff, and he's like, "Oh, okay, good." You know, he's like, uh, "He's like a lot of the people don't really know uh, the Marvel characters so much." And I'm like, "Oh, yeah, I've been reading comics for like 30 years." And he turned and he goes, "Oh, so you're a big comic geek then?" And like, I, I if if I could have gotten away with punching him without going to jail, I probably would have, but. Uh, I was just like, no, I'm just a guy who likes comic books. And, uh, which, you know, is kind of a dick thing for me to say. Uh, he wasn't, he didn't mean anything by it, but I just have such a weird trigger with that word. <laughs> with, uh, no, I'm not a comic geek. I, I'm just a guy who likes comics. Just, can we leave it at that? Um, but yeah, his face, like, kind of, like, shifted a little bit. But he, he then gave me a quiz on, uh, on the characters, and I guess I scored well enough because I got the job. Um... That's my really my only my only Hasbro centric anecdote. But uh, as I'm working for the company, I was working alongside um, a very nice woman, uh, one of the nicest women I've ever worked, one of the nicest people I've ever worked with. Um, and uh, it was weird; we like clicked right away. Uh, we were working together for like 20 minutes, and it was already like we were old friends. Uh, and, and it's always magic when you have that sort of a situation in a in a professional environment. Because so often, especially if you're a new person and it's like seasonal work, there's like this weird unspoken competition where, you know, you feel like, well, if you're doing good, then I'm doing less good. And if there's a permanent position coming up, you're going to get it and not me and yada, yada, yada. It, it can be pretty backbitey. Um, take it from someone who's worked a lot of temp jobs. Uh, but here, totally different. We just clicked immediately. And, uh, you know, you start talking about things that are a little deeper than just the weather and, you know, what was on TV last night. And uh, she tells me the story because one thing that, you know, I, I will, people will ask what I do and I'll generally lead with I'm, you know, a student or, you know, at present a grad student. And then they'll ask what I'm a student of and I'll tell them psychology. And then all of a sudden their eyes light up because... If you're if you're if you've ever taken a psychology class or have been a student of psychology, you'll know that uh, people really like having you around because they like to 
They like to ask you questions about stuff. They like to, uh, they think you have insight into them at, at sight, you know, like you don't even need to know their backstory, but you can look at them uh, like, you're a, like you're a cyborg from the future. You can scan them and you can tell them exactly what their, their psychological maladies are and what they need to do to, uh, to be happy. So, you know, their eyes light up. And uh, one thing she told me is that uh, recently she was reading something and she just started bawling. Couldn't figure out why. And uh, and then it came back to me that I had this very similar experience with this, you know, this X-Men issue. And uh, I was just like, and I didn't really reveal too much, but I was just like, okay, well, tell me more. You know, I did the old, <laughs> the old uh, um, cliche uh, therapy tool of tell me more. Um, the open-ended, you know, discussion extender. And I was learning more about her and her experience and uh, how things all of a sudden started affecting her differently and how this was a, uh, you know, fairly recent sensation and a, and a change in um, the way she uh, felt um, emotions and uh, displayed emotions and stuff like that. And she told me she, you know, took some tests online, which is usually where I glaze over. Um, I, I have a big problem with the self-diagnosis, uh, model, uh, of, like, internet testing. Uh, whether it's for IQ, whether it's for EQ, whether it's for your personality type, uh, whether it's for finding out if you're a, uh, a gifted introvert, um, whether it's finding out which Disney princess you are, I, I don't, I don't think those things are, are good for you. I think that those are, uh... They're too easily manipulated. And usually you go into a self-test knowing the result you're looking for. So if you want to come out of a test displaying ADHD tendencies, you're going to test out as having ADHD tendencies. It's just, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in most cases. I mean, that's a lot of what I get uh, from folks who know what field I'm in will be uh, just appeals to validate their findings. And uh, so often, I, the big one that I get, um, or I have gotten over the years, is uh, people wanting me to confirm that they have Asperger's syndrome. And uh, it almost breaks their heart when I have to tell them that Asperger's is no longer a diagnosis. Um, because they think they have all the answers for it, because they took the test on BuzzFeed. Um, Asperger's is, is technically no longer a diagnosis. Um, it hasn't been for a little while now. It's just part of the broader, uh, ASD at this point. But, uh, Asperger's was the biggie that people would like me to validate. And frankly, I'm a student. I don't have the ability to do so. And I, and without context and without testing, I, it would be, uh, it would be, you know, dishonest and egotistic as hell for me to... To, to confirm or you know, to validate or invalidate uh, your findings uh, of your of your self you know self test and so I usually just bow out I don't uh, I don't engage with those things because I, I'm frankly not equipped to do so and uh, when people find out 
that they they generally are are far less impressed with with you and your <laughs> your course of uh and your educational trajectory your academic uh goals cuz you're not doing what they want you to do uh i'm going into school psychology which is very very different from the from what you might expect if you've seen an episode of frasier it's not that uh basically in educational uh psychology or school psychology you're you find yourself in a gatekeeper role. Basically, what you do is you're testing children to see if they require additional services, uh, special education, coaching, interventions, stuff like that. You're basically a gatekeeper um, to see whether or not they would a, a student will be more successful in different situations. Um, and everything is predicated on testing. So... And we're going to go a little bit deeper into this as we as we continue through this meandering story. But uh, without the ability to test somebody, and, and without the knowledge of how to test somebody, because, like I said, I am just a student. Um, I can't tell you what the uh, what your outcomes are. I can't tell you anything besides an uneducated yes, just like you could get from anybody on any random street, you know. So. Uh, yeah, this is a very tangential story, and I apologize for that, but uh, I thought about her situation here in that uh, these uh, things that were not affecting her before were now, uh, like, emotionally charged to the point where she couldn't uh, control her emotions. She was, uh, you know, very challenged with uh, the way she was receiving things. And I thought more about it, and I thought more about it, and um, I thought about questions I could ask that weren't, that didn't put me in some sort of authoritarian um, place where I wasn't, you know, where I wasn't doctoring her. Because, I mean, like I said, I'm just a student, I don't know anything. Um, but I did ask some questions about, like, okay, well, when did this start? You know, the basic things that you would ask as a friend. Um, and so when did this start? And we're trying to, you know, trace the uh, trace these emotions back to a to like a ground zero. And uh, long story, a little bit less long. Um, what we finally came to was a couple years earlier, she was put on a cocktail of antidepressants, anti-anxieties, uh, anti-bipolars, uh, a whole slew of different medicines, medications, and. Uh, you know, medication is a weird thing. I don't know a whole lot about it. Um, that's not my field. I There is certainly a reason for medications. Uh, medications help people, uh, you know, mentally, uh, emotionally, physically. I just don't know enough about them to really speak to them eloquently. And uh, But I was able to reflect back on my own experience here and came to the realization that my shift in emotion was also um, affected by a cocktail of uh, psychotropic medications. And uh, now this is the part of the story I wasn't <laughs> really sure if I wanted to share. But, uh, I mean, we're like three days into the story already, so we might as well push forward. Now, I had mentioned in the past that... Uh, that I did see a, uh, a therapist for a little while because I was, in my words, a leftover yuppie who had a 
crippling fear of success. Um, if you've listened to this show, you've heard me use that same exact phrase a couple times already. And while that was true, that wasn't the whole story. Um, I've also talked about my job at the recycling plant and how much I loved it and how much uh, it affected me when I lost it. And while that's not untrue, it's also not the whole story. There was actually a time that I was working there that I really, really wanted out. I was hating life, I was miserably depressed, and I wanted anything else. You know, I wanted to get out of there, um, but I was too much of a coward to do it. Um, I'm the kind of guy who, where when I get comfortable, um, it doesn't matter how bad things really get. Um, so long as I'm comfortable, um, it's kind of like the devil you know. You know, it's, it's like, well, it sucks, but I'm here. You know, it's a lot easier just to deal with the day-to-day than actually put any effort into making things better. And, uh, honestly, I was just too much of a coward to explore options, and I'm the kind of person who has trouble making up their own mind. I need to be told what to do in a lot of situations, and in seeing this counselor or this therapist, I was hoping that they would tell me what to do, you know? Um... Of, of course, that's not how therapy works, or it's not how it should work. Um, therapy is a, a two-way street, and it's not... It, you know, talking therapy is not quick. Uh, that takes a long time, um, sometimes a lifetime, you know? Uh, it's all about discovery, it's all about coping, it's all about uh, changing your, your, your way of thinking, really. Reframing your... Uh, your thoughts, um, understanding your behaviors, stuff like that. So I was going to see this therapist here too, for the wrong reasons. I was, I went to be told what to do or to be given something that would make me either cope better or to push myself to do something better. Um, and this all stems from a, uh, a grant that uh, that I had written for the company. I had written with the manager there for the company. Um, we were a recycling company, as mentioned, and every year we would uh, we'd fill out a couple of grants, and uh, these grants were for uh, you know government money to facilitate growing the business. Um, not so much for. We weren't taking money for us. We were hoping to get money to disperse among uh, potential new clients. Because uh, recycling is, uh, well, it's big money. Um, The machinery, the equipment, it's uh, not very, it's not like multitasking equipment. If you buy recycling equipment, there's only one thing you can do with it. (laughs) It's, It's to... It's to create bales of recyclable recyclable commodity, basically, is what you're doing. So you can't use them for other things. They are what they are, what they are, and they are very expensive. So what we were trying to do was grow the business. We wanted to deal with, um, we wanted to make inroads with um, various communities in the state. And so we would start with public works offices. We would go down to small towns and like down by the Mexico border, uh, up in the uh, up in the woods uh, north of Phoenix, 
uh, we would just go to these small towns and present them with, you know, options for how they can save money, how we can make them money. Um, but, of course, it would be a big out-of-pocket investment to start because they would have to buy this very, very expensive equipment. And so we would write grants, hopeful to get money so we can maybe help widen the margin a little bit, you know, help people, help communities join the program with a little bit less out of pocket, make it a little bit more palatable, uh, make it easier for them to get it past their boards of directors and their uh, stakeholders and stuff like that. So what we would do, we would write grants um, a few times a year. And uh, the thing with environmental grants are uh, no matter how well your grant is written, if you're a for-profit industry like we were, you're put like on pile two. You know, pile one is going to be the nonprofits, which is the way it ought to be. Um, but we had this understanding that it was an uphill battle. Uh, at the best situation, it was an uphill battle, and it was very unlikely to ever bear fruit. And so, time and again, we would get declined. Uh, sometimes we would get past, like, the first cut or the second cut. But we would never actually score. You know, and we understood that. That was obvious. But uh, the way it was presented to uh, corporate as we were doing this is, uh, is from the uh, the manager's, manager's point of view, who our manager was also the salesman of the uh, of the branch. And so... He was responsible for growing the industry, growing the business. Um, we were kind of given, we were laid like a golden foundation. I mentioned we had a large retailer. Uh, I'll just tell you it was a Walmart. We had all the Walmarts in the Phoenix metro area uh, that we served. And uh, we grew that to be the entire state. And then we grew that to be into New Mexico and into Western Texas and into Southern California. We grew this pretty well. But... It was still just one client. So what we were tasked with, or what he was tasked with, was uh, making it so we were no longer reliant, or overly reliant, on one client. So if they pulled up stakes and left, we still had a business. Ultimately, that's how we went out of business, because it didn't grow so much. Um, so that was what we were tasked with, and that's why we were trying to... Uh, get into these other communities. And so as we were turned down time and again for these grants, uh, it would always be that, you know, we, uh, you know, emphasis on we. We wrote these grants, and uh, it just didn't work out. Well, fast forward a year or so, and uh, we got one. Uh, we actually got one. And... Uh, and it was like a huge celebration because we were not expecting it. This was not something we were uh, ever expecting because we were for profit. Um, and it wasn't like a huge amount, but it was something. You know, we, even if we could just provide, you know, roll-off dumpsters to some, to some communities or some businesses, anything would help, and anything would help grow the business, and anything would help them save mo the customer save money and... Uh, it was a good thing all around. And I remember the CFO came to visit because this was a huge celebration. And we actually managed to seal a deal with a, a community down by the, uh, the Mexico border. We were able to seal a deal, get some equipment sold, and 
things looked like they were moving forward. You know, things were looking great. And uh, the CFO comes to visit to celebrate. And he locks himself into the uh, the manager's office, and they're hooting and hollering, having a great time. And one of my drivers came over, and he's like, hey, I heard uh, the manager got a, you know, he got commission for this, got a big commission for this. And uh, and, I, and I was like, that's cool, you know, I, I that's, you know, that's awesome. He got commission. I, I didn't want any of his money. Uh, that's really not what I've been about. Um... I more wanted the recognition. I wanted uh, I wanted people to know that I was there to help, and that I did have a hand in this. So I, that rolled off my shoulder, and I'm like, "Yeah, well, cool. He's buying lunch for the next couple of weeks, then, you know, because hey, he he knows I was there, <laughs> you know, and and that was part of his deal. He had commission in his deal. I did not. I was just a uh, I was a day to day operations manager type of guy who. I took care of the drivers, I took care of the equipment, I took care of the logistics, uh, I took care of accounting and HR, all the stuff that uh, that would fall to like a, an office full of people fell to me, and I was fine with that. So uh, they, they, their meeting wraps up, right? And uh, the CFO comes over to me, or he, he pops his head into the break room first, and then he comes over to me, he's like, Chris, I need to talk to you. And, you know, I get up and my chest's puffed out. I'm like, oh, here it comes. He's going to say, he's going to say thank you for, for being a part of this. And uh, maybe give me a pat on the back and add a boy. I wasn't looking for money. I was not looking for any money. Just uh, a, you know, good job. I know you were part of this. And he walks me into the break room. And <laughs> he points into the bathroom. And he goes, looks like one of the drivers didn't make it to the toilet. I'm going to need you to clean that up. And I deflated. Um, I just like if I, if I I might have fallen to the floor. I don't know, but I was expecting this, you know, pat on the back and a good job because I'd put so many hours into this project over the years trying to get this uh, these grants. And uh, whenever we failed, it was a it was both of us. But when we succeeded. I wasn't a part of this equation anymore. And uh, and now I'm left with the CFO equating me with a dirty bathroom. Um, and uh, I was just floored. I don't even remember if I cleaned the bathroom. I don't think I did. <laughs> I don't recall if I did or not. I can't see myself doing that, so I probably didn't. Um... But I remember it was very disgusting. So the CFO leaves, and I go into the manager's office, and I'm like, dude, what the hell? And he's like, what? I'm like, I, nobody knows I had a part of this. Nobody knows I wrote most of this. Nobody knows any of that. And he didn't have a response for me. And, uh, and he's like, he's, he starts digging in his, in his wallet, and I'm like, dude, I don't want your money. I don't want money. You know, um... If you're uh, if you're a wrestling fan, one of uh, the quotes that Bret Hart would make uh, during his many many contract negotiations during the mid 1990s was that he's not greedy for money, but he's greedy for respect, and that's one that I kind of live by. Um, you know, at the end of the day, if you know that I was a part of it, that's really all I need. Um, and to be slighted in such a way, 
here. Um, and I mean, even just saying that I helped would have been fine. Just so the people who are responsible for giving me raises and giving me promotions down the line know that I'm not just some dude who can clean a bathroom. That would mean a lot for my, you know, professional uh, uh, endeavors and uh, forward trajectory, even. And he couldn't even give me that. And this uh, really, really shook me. And it was the first time that in my entire professional life that I didn't leave the job at the door. Um, I... Any, I, I mean, I've been in screaming matches at work. I've been, you know, in shoving matches at work. I, I've been in confrontations many times at work. I've had people threaten me. I've had to fire people. I've had to, I've had to you know, uh, discipline people. I've had, you know, people threaten to slice my ties. I've had all sorts of stuff. People threatening to follow me home. But I was always able to leave the job at the door. Here, though... I wasn't. Here, it came home with me. And it really, it, it just seeped its way into every facet of my life. I, you know, I couldn't eat. Uh, um, like, you know, I, I always had trouble sleeping. I've talked about that at length. But, I mean, I was just so angry and so disappointed and so let down. Um, and didn't see any point in sticking around because... You know, what's the point of what's the point of trying if you're not going to be recognized, uh, especially, you know, and I'm talking in a professional sense here. Uh, of course, there are, you know, random acts of kindness you can do without, you know, having arrows pointed at you. But uh, but when you're trying to uh, advance a career, it uh, is helpful that the people who can um, make you those inroads would know that you're worth making inroads for, and in this situation, they did not. Um, so, I was looking for a way out. Um, you know, I, I'd i come to work and I was like a zombie. I was just like a an absolute zombie. I would just come in, I would do the job, I wouldn't talk to anybody, I wouldn't talk to the manager, I'd, I'd plainly ignore him when he talked to me, because I just couldn't talk to him. Um... And then I'd go home and I would stew all night, all day, and then repeat the process again. It was just a very miserable existence for uh, for quite a while. And it's at this point that I decided I needed some fixing. I needed to uh, find a way out. And it's when I started looking for someone to talk to about my situation. And, uh, you know, to be told, like I said earlier, to be told what to do. You know, you become an adult, and it's it's weird to go to your parents or your, to, to tell you what to do, um, because that's one of those things you really can't. Uh, that's a genie you can't put back in the bottle. I, th- I feel, but uh, you could go to a professional and do it, and ask. You know, what do I do? What do I do? And uh, unfortunately, I, I found myself falling into the same trap. That uh, it's not even a trap. It's just a. Uh, it's just a particular. Um, point of view, or a uh, expectation, maybe, that if I'm talking to a professional, they obviously have all the answers, and they, you know, they can just be like a cyborg from the future, scan me down once or twice, and tell me exactly what I need to do 
in order to uh, be happy, in order to um, self-actualize, uh, <laughs> if we go into the Maslow uh, uh, realm there. But uh, so I started seeing uh, someone, and uh, and we talked, and I, at the best of times, I'm impatient. Um, but here I was especially so because I was expect you know I'm paying for this service I was expecting answers right away which is the exact wrong way to approach a, a talking therapy or a psychoanalysis um, as I said before these are long processes this is uh, these are things that go on for months years lifetimes um, and I I wasn't meeting the therapist halfway I wasn't doing because as much as I wanted to be told what to do when I was told what to do in 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 not so many words I didn't do it you know a lot of it is uh, cognitive behavioral where you kind of just you take a step back and you think about the way you process or you deal with um, a, a situation or a sensation or um, a scenario and uh, with the realization that, you know, it, the way you think is, is a big part of the way you behave. And I was uh, failing <laughs> on every single level. Um, and I think part of that um, goes to my inability to separate uh, personal and professional. Uh, where I felt that uh, the manager, I felt that he and I were friends. And had it just been a professional relationship, I doubt this would have bothered me so much. But the fact that I had um, let myself believe that uh, we were pals, you know, I think that just exacerbated the feelings of resentment that I held toward him in this situation. And I just couldn't let it go. Um, you know, folks who know me now, uh, this might not sound like anything uh, too crazy uh, <laughs> because uh, I feel similarly in, in a lot of situations now um, they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're very silly but I'm very silly uh, I, I know like uh, when when Reggie would get called out for doing a great job on a show and I wouldn't be, I'd take that personally even though very seldomly was it meant in, as any sort of passive aggressive slight against me but it would still bug me it would still really bug me, and uh, and you know it's it's silly, it's very silly. But uh, I think a lot of that stems from here, uh, this situation that I was in back at the uh, at the plant. So back to therapy here. I was probably going a couple times a month for eh, probably six months or so, and uh, what it came down to is you know I I think I I think I. I ran out the patience of the counselor because it was just like, you know, if you're unhappy, you need to you need to do something about that. And uh, rather than actually take my you know future into my own hands here and actually work toward getting taking myself out of that uncomfortable situation or the situation that was making me unhappy, I was too comfortable. I was too complacent. Even though I was miserable, there was a complacency there, and I, I remained. And uh, I'd occasionally half-heartedly 
fill out applications elsewhere or send in resumes elsewhere, including to Hasbro back then. Probably the first time I ever did it. Um, but it just got to the point where things weren't changing and I was not willing to put in the work to, to change them. And I lost my patience and I said, you need to put me on something. You need to put me on something. Uh, you know, the, the old mythical happy pill. I need to be put on something because um, this ain't working. And, and this was something I was putting very little effort into. I was just expecting it to work because I was going through the motions. And that's, again, dumb. That's the wrong way to do this. Uh, and I, I can look back at it now and really feel ashamed of myself for, uh, for wasting everybody's time. And uh, maybe... I don't know, I was putting myself in a situation that I didn't need to be in. Um, because if I wasn't willing to do the work, then I didn't need to be there. Um, so finally, like I said, I push for medication. Because medication, it's there, it's got to work, right? <laughs> and, uh, and begrudgingly, and this is, this is weird, begrudgingly, uh, my counselor gave me a referral. Weird in that I don't think she believed I needed it. And in hindsight, I didn't. But she still did. She, st I mean, she still gave me this referral to um, speak to an MD, which um, is weird. <laughs> Thinking about it now is, I don't know, it seems a little bit too easy to become medicated these days. And, uh, I mean, I could talk about that for ages, and I, I, I won't. Because <laughs> uh, that'll, that'll take us even further off the path here. I think we've already been talking for uh, three or four days. Um Anyway, I'm sent in to an MD, a, a psychiatrist, to, uh, to discuss medication. And uh, my expectation for this was a lot different than what it actually turned out to be. I figured this was going to be the, you know, the full-on Fraser Crane session, you know? Not really knowing back then the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist the way I do now. I was expecting a very similar experience, only with the added benefit of a prescription. That was not the case. Um, when you see a psychiatrist or even a, a GP about any sort of a mental health issue, you know, you, you sit at the table, they ask you what you need, you tell them what you need, they give it to you. <laughs> at least in my experience, I'm sure I'm not making a, I'm trying not to make a blanket statement here, but in my experience, that's what it was. And uh, the unfortunate thing is I knew some uh, medications that I was interested in trying. And when you name them, that makes it all that much easier for them to prescribe them to you. Now, the first one that I was given was one called Depakote. Now, Depakote was a little, it was new at the time. No, 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 not Depakote yet. First was Lamictal, and this was new at the time. And... Uh, as luck would have it, as luck would have it, in, in quotation marks, yeah, um, Lamictal, the representative for Lamictal, had just stopped by the office and dropped off a huge supply of samples. And uh, so it was easy to get, and I didn't even have to pay for it. I didn't have to wait for it. I was just handed these boxes and said, there you go, do it. Um, now, one thing I was told was that uh, this was new on the market, or newish on the market, to the point where it didn't have a generic counterpart yet. So, you know, pretty novel. And uh, I was told there's one side effect that they knew of that was visible, and uh, 
if you were taking it for any amount of time and you suddenly developed a rash on your hand, immediately stop taking it because uh, it, it could be bad news. Well, wouldn't you know it, a week later I developed a rash on my hand. <laughs> and uh, I remember calling in to tell uh, the doc about it. And I was like, yeah, you know, you told me about this rash. I am getting something on my hand here that resembles, you know, a rash. And uh, she told me to up the dose, which <laughs> blew me away. And I was like, up the dose? I, I thought this was going to, you know, I thought this was going to kill me. But uh, that was the last I saw of that doctor. I wasn't going to go back there. I, I kind of was just like, you, you got to be kidding me. You told me the one thing to avoid, and now you're telling me to double. And It was just a disaster. Needless to say, it didn't work. Uh, this one didn't work. So I asked for a different referral, got a different referral, and this is when I started on the cocktail of things that would make me feel better or that would push me to greatness. Uh, and, uh, and again, I'm very, very impatient. Um, the thing with um, this sort of medication is that it takes time to build up in your system. I didn't have the patience for that. And, uh, and I wanted results immediately. And uh, ultimately, I mean, long story, still long, but not quite as long as it could be. Um, I was on this weird cocktail revolving door of medications for a few months. And finally I found one that, um, I don't know if it worked so much as it just dulled my reactions to everything. And this was a, a generic, a generic uh, pill that I think a lot of folks have heard of. It's a uh, Paxil. And it uh, is an antidepressant. And I took it. And suddenly I did not care about anything. Um, within like a week, I was just happy as a clam. I was talking to people that I wouldn't talk to a couple weeks earlier. I was friends with the manager again. Didn't care about any of the slights. Didn't care about anything. Um, I was just, you know, the nicest guy in the room, <laughs> but I didn't feel anything, which was very, very bizarre. I didn't have any emotions, and uh, and this is around the time. I mean, I mean, this whole story that I'm telling you started late 2005-ish, and uh, this went all the way to 2008. So. In 2008 is when I lost my job, when, when we closed down uh, on Leap Day, of course. So I was on these this cocktail for the better part of, you know, two or three years. And Paxil is where I landed. And uh, like I said, it didn't make me feel better, it just didn't make me feel anything. And I, uh, I was okay with it. Because I was able to exist, and I wasn't angry, and uh, I wasn't anything, <laughs> which uh, probably isn't a way to go through life, but uh, it's what it was. But uh, you know, as mentioned, uh, we lost we lost the company. The company, uh, the branch closed down, and uh, with the job went my insurance, and so I could no longer afford. Uh, my, you know, my dulling pills. And I have nothing empirical, no empirical evidence to support what I'm about to say. 
and I don't have any education in medication, but I part of me is wondering if there was an overcorrection in my body when I stopped taking this pill that made me, my emotions heightened. And perhaps that's why I reacted the way I did to this issue of X-Men, because this is a comic book podcast, if you haven't uh, picked up on that. Um, and so, as I reflect on this story, and uh, my path through, you know, a medicinal cocktail, um, I was talking, back, we're back in 2015 in Hasbro, and, uh, and we're talking about some of the medications we're taking, we, we had taken, and how we felt on certain medications, and uh, we get to Paxil. And we talk about Paxil, and it's weird how we, we both wound up sticking with that one. That's when we both wound up sticking with, and we had very similar reactions to taking it, in that um, our emotions were dulled, um, and we were kind of uh, emotional zombies, in a way where we couldn't get mad, we weren't going to get upset, we also weren't going to get happy, but we were just kind of able to go through the day, and I understand and I can appreciate that there are people who need that. There are people who certainly need that and can benefit from that. And for a little while, I was one of those people. Um, but we both stopped taking the medication and all of a sudden, and again, I have absolutely zero empirical uh, sort of data. Um, this is all just my hot take from anecdotal experience. Um, so don't take this to the bank. Don't. There's no citations here. Um, but we both stopped taking it, and then all of a sudden, our emotions kind of overcorrected, and we became very, very sensitive to the way we were feeling. And it's uh, weird that we both had such a similar um, experience. And I haven't talked to very many people who are on this uh, similar uh, path, but... You know, and I'm not even going to ask people to share because this is really none of my business. And I'm, frankly, probably overstepping by just telling you what I'm telling you now. But it's just something I always think about when this issue of Uncanny X-Men pops into my head. And uh, it's weird. It's a story that I've been telling you now for about 70 minutes. But uh, when I look at the cover of X-Men, uh, Uncanny X-Men 308, this entire conversation flashes through my head in a split second. So <laughs> it's... Uh, very, very strange um, to me, and uh, I don't know. Um, it's the only issue of a comic that's done this to me uh, in this sort of um, un unexplainable sort of way. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, this is a very happy issue. Um, and there might be a lot of, I don't know, maybe there's just things that resonate in it with me, or I don't know, because, I mean, I've been moved before by a comic book, but this one was very, very different in that, um, this was, this was where, you know, I, I, it's like I almost didn't feel the emotion so much as the behavior of crying, you know, it was just more of a guttural or more of a, a physical reaction than an emotional one, and I just couldn't explain why, but and again, I don't have any way to prove or disprove anything I just said. It's just, you know, take it for what it's worth. This is just what goes through my head when I think about um, this book. And I, I, I have an appreciation 
uh, you know, as we all do, for just how complex the mind is and uh, how once you start tinkering with it, um, I mean, you you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing in it. Uh, there's always a there's always residual. Um, I don't know. I think that's probably all I've got to say about this. Uh, I've taken the extremely scenic route, and if you're still with me, uh, I love you. Thank you. <laughs> um, what say we send it over to the horns and we finally get into this issue uh, right about now? Finally, it's Uncanny X-Men number 308, January 1994 cover date. Mixed Blessings by Scott Lobdell. Pencils, John Romita Jr. Inks by Dan Green and Alvey. Letters by Chris Eliopoulos. Colors by Steve Bouchelado. Edits, Bob Harris. Tom DeFalco's The Chief. This one had a $1.25 cover price and was released on November 2nd, 1993. Now let's get into it. It's Thanksgiving morning, and Scott and Jean are having themselves a pretty mushy walk around the grounds of the Xavier School. Now, Gene is staring lovingly at Scott, and he, he kind of doesn't get why at this point. When asked, she explains that she was just thinking about that moment, back in the long ago, when she realized that he was the one. And she's not necessarily talking about how he was the one, as in the one she wanted to spend the rest of her life with. This is more the one that she'll have her first ever puppy dog crush on. Now, this was very early during their days as X-Men. Uh, I think it was even before the professor had started training Jean in earnest. Uh, we've got a scene here, a flashback, with Scott tinkering with some gigantic spiked balls in the danger room. And uh, a reminder here, this is before they got all that Shi'ar technology, so it was a much more, you know, gritty danger room. Now, the pair have a fairly uncomfortable chat, including Jean learning that Scott's name really isn't Slim. Uh, Scott's not a terribly social fella and is initially dismissive of Jean's presence. That is, until he gets a good look at her eyes, and he uh, completely loses his balance, nearly tumbling to the ground from the ladder he was on. Now Jean, being a telekinetic, easily catches him and gently brings him to the ground. Of course, this isn't before Scott gives his uh, requisite shout to uh, stand clear, just in case his ruby quartz glasses fall off. Now, in present day, Scott's almost positive that Gene is misremembering, or at least embellishing this event, because um, he's sure he wasn't always such a stuffy guy. Now, the flashback is interrupted by the literal bouncing beast, with Jubilee riding old Hank around the yard. Now, these two wind up hopping into and destroying every freshly raked pile of leaves along the way. You see, this gets really gets under Storm's skin, because uh, she, Sean, and Forge had spent the last several hours raking by hand, which is to say without the use of their powers, because Forge or Banshee insisted that this endeavor would be therapeutic. Now, Storm starts going off on Beast, and all in all, it's a pretty funny little scene. It's a cute little scene, and... Uh, and it reminds us that Hank might just be trying to get Jubilee's mind off of uh, some recent happenings with uh, her good friend Logan. Uh, this is uh, the very recent forcible adamantium yoinking at the hand of Magneto during the uh, Fatal Attractions dealing. Now Scott sees this and he can't help but laugh at the scene. Gene notices Scott's laughter and asks if he can recall the last time the X-Men were able to just be. You know, just exist and enjoy each other's company. Scott replies that it feels like it's been a lifetime, and, uh, thinking back to the time here, he's not entirely wrong. It's been a long time since we had an issue like this. 
Now, our gaze next travels to Gambit, Rogue, and Iceman as they try to explain what a scarecrow is to Bishop. Uh, Bishop doesn't get the concept at all, despite the fact that they looks like they just spent the past you know hour or so building one. We get a little bit of a like a humorous disconnect here, where uh, Bobby talks about his childhood, you know, innocence, wonderment, and all that stuff. Bishop replies by saying that his childhood was spent in hiding so that the M-plates wouldn't find him and suck the marrow from his bones, which, I mean, way to kill a, kill a moment there, Bishop. Now, it's worth noting that this scarecrow is supposedly modeled on Doctor Doom, and looking at it, I give it a 6 out of 10. Next, Bobby tries to explain football to Bishop, and uh, I, this is really starting to feel like an episode of Perfect Strangers or something. Uh, now... Bishop looks at the odd-shaped orb and says it looks nothing like neither a foot nor a ball. Ugh. Back to Scott and Jean. They're back to flashback land. Jean recalls an early meeting she had with the professor regarding her inability to control her powers. She says to the professor that she's being overcome by thousands of voices in her head. From here, we get the quick and dirty on Jean's time before the X-Men with a reminder that several years earlier, her friend Annie had died in her arms. Now, before passing, Jean's mind wound up in contact with Annie's, and this would leave Jean in a catatonic state for three years. The professor had erected several psychic safeguards in Jean in order to protect her as she learns how to fully control her powers. These safeguards appear to be faulty, however, as Jean is sort of kind of overriding them with her attraction towards Scott. Now, you see, these, these fail-safes, these safeguards are trying to keep everything inside, you know, but she's actively trying to connect with Scott mentally, which is starting to put a strain on those safeguards and is ultimately responsible for letting in all these disparate voices. Xavier kind of hymns and haws, but doesn't, at the end of the day, doesn't seem to see a whole lot of a problem with this. Um, you know, it's, you know, normal for human beings to be attracted to one another, uh, especially, you know, where you don't understand your emotions like Gene might not at this point. He tells her to get some rest, because the next day there's going to be a whole lot of training for her. Now, once Xavier's gone, Gene manifests a psionic image of Cyclops, which she swoons over for a little bit. We hop back to the present. The X-Men are in the middle of a football game, though at this point it looks like a one-on-one -on -one football game between Beast and Iceman, which would probably be terribly unfair. Back to flashback land. The next, stop, the next stop down Gene and Scott memory lane, uh, we're heading to the Phoenix Saga. Now, the gist of this scene is that the Phoenix Force, regardless of how powerful it was, didn't wind up being stronger than Scott and Gene's love for one another, so love won out in the end and the Phoenix Force did not. Next, we get a rare bit of Claremontian long-burn subplotting from Scott Lobdell here. Uh, we get a scene, a very short scene, of an ordinary fella heading off to his morning carpool and then tossing his briefcase out the window of the waiting van. Uh, this is a, uh, a little bit of a uh, breadcrumb on our path to the Phalanx Covenant, which I think at this point is like the better part of a year away, so good job with this slow burn there. I like it. Uh, back to the game. Now, the X-Men are paired off in teams, strategizing and trash-talking. Uh, looking at the way they're talking to one another, it feels it really does feel like getting together with relatives you don't see very often. Uh, I might be projecting here, I guess, but it, it gives that weird feeling of, like, you know, being on a, on a team with cousins that you only see every few years, and that odd camaraderie, which is sort of, like, predicated in novelty, uh, while there is a familiar hour, fam easy for me to say, familiarity there as well. It's, 
I don't know. The scene got to me a little bit. Now, finally, the ball snapped, and we start to play. Now, Forge is quarterback, and Gambit goes long. Forge falls back, hurls the ball toward Remy, but... Interception. Archangel, who we hadn't seen up to this point, swoops in, like he literally flies in and catches the ball. Everybody boos, and we get the requisite mention of the implied no powers rule. Of course, no one actually said no powers, but the implication's always there. Scott and Gene are up on a hill just out of view of the game, but they can still hear the brouhaha. Scott comments that, uh, you know, just by listening, they almost sound like a family down there, and, uh, and I agree. Now, this turns the discussion to the subject of, well, family, and maybe starting a family. Since this is the X-Men, Scott and Gene already have a time-displaced child in Rachel, uh, one and a half if we're counting Cable. Uh, Gene talks about how off-putting this was to her initially, you know, discovering that Rachel was a, a child of hers in a alternate future. She felt in a way like her story had already been written, and at this point all she was destined to do was play along, just fill the role. Scott thinks about sending baby Nathan to the future, and how that makes him feel like he was a horrible father. Of course, going back, he only did this to save the kid, the tot, but uh, I guess it's easy to see where he's coming from. We hop back to the game, and uh, Professor Xavier rolls up and looks on. He seems very happy to see his students and friends having such a good time together. He almost hates to break it up, but dinner's ready, and uh, you don't want to keep a turkey waiting. During an especially physical play, uh, the ball gets loose, and it bounces all the way over to the professor, who catches it and then is summarily tackled by the entire X-Men team. We hop back to the hill, and uh, Cyclops is looking on with an almost Seinfeldian, that's a shame, look on his face. He excuses himself for a moment to head off and tend to the professor, until Gene proposes... Now, if you were reading Uncanny X-Men number 308 when it hit the shelves, uh, these voice balloons were famously left empty, which uh, is an absolute riot to me. Uh, these were the ones that were built. We were building up to these panels for for some folks for you know 30 years. We were building up to this scene, and they messed it up. They left the balloons empty. In a, in a future letters page, they would give us the right ones, and in the collected edition, it's repaired, of course, but... Uh, it's funny. I mean, you get the gist of it, of course, from what happens after this. But uh, such a such a disaster that they missed those balloons. Now, Cyclops is taken aback. After all, the last time he proposed to Gene back in uh, X Factor number fifty-two, Gene declined. Gene says that she wasn't ready then, but she is now. She said she was scared back then, but right now the only fear she has is what life might be without Scott and her together forever. Now, together, they summarize the greatest hits package of their relationship that we just went through, you know, all those scenes, and ultimately, they agree to be hitched. Now, we head into the uh, into the mansion here, and we see a loaded Thanksgiving table full of food and family, and the professor is making his toast. And I'm pretty sure if I had to make an educated guess, this is probably the scene that got me back in 2013. He makes mention of all the trials they'd faced that year, which would have been 1993. During that year, the legacy virus came to light. Ilyana passed away. Ilyana Rasputin was the first, you know, fatality of the legacy virus, the first victim. Uh, her brother, Colossus, Pyotr Rasputin, he defected to Magneto's side and joined the Acolytes. Wolverine had that uh, his adamantium yoinked out. Magneto was lobotomized and... Uh, 
the X-Men had were forced to take Sabretooth in as you know, to try to rehabilitate him. So that, that's a heck of a year. A lot of crazy stuff happened in 1993. Now, Xavier comments that these troubles have only made them stronger, and so long as they keep at it, that his dream will ultimately come true. Scott pops in with an announcement that he'd like to add to the proceedings, that being, of course, that he and Jean are to be married. The crowd goes wild, with a little bit of razzing, that it took him so long to get to this point. Now, the scene continues to be festive and bright. The professor, he kind of sticks to himself. He kind of, you know, backs himself to the wall and just watches. He observes. And he mentions that he's happy to hear the sound of laughter echoing off the mansion's walls because it's been so dreary and dark of late. He's not without reservation for this announcement, but he chooses to keep it to himself because today is about celebration. And uh, when you're an X-Man... You take any victory you can get. Man, what a good issue. <laughs> what a great issue. Uh, still one of my favorites here. Um, it's funny, uh, this was supposed to be that Thanksgiving episode I mentioned. Uh, so, almost a year ago, uh, this was supposed to come out as an episode of Remarvel. Um, and, I, to be honest, I'd, re- I'd recorded some of it. I'd recorded uh, a little bit of the, the opening... Um, a couple times, and uh, it was that albatross I mentioned earlier. I I, tr- I actually hadn't read the issue. I figured that I would just read it before I was going to record, and that kept becoming the the hurdle that I kept putting in front of myself as to not do this episode. It's like, well, I could tell the story, I could tell the you know the more personal bits to start this off, but. Yeah, I'll eventually get to the comic. I don't know if it was just that I was nervous that it was going to affect me a similar way, or if it was just my way of giving myself an out, um, or just giving myself another step that I had to do to get through this episode. Um, and 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 you know, I, I thank you all so much for listening. If you still are, I know this is uh, some very wildly self-indulgent stuff, and I'm sure it's not interesting uh, to many people, but. Uh, you know, you do what you can, and uh, this episode is more about clearing a logjam, so I can move forward. This one has just been that hurdle. Um, as uh, you're listening to this, or as I'm recording this, I should say, today was the first day in a very long time that I actually sat down and read this uh, in order to write the uh, synopsis. And um, it didn't move me quite as much as it did back in 2013, though uh, it, it, it you know moved me in a different way. Um, it wasn't so much anything that I took as, um, I didn't really project my life onto it. You know, it wasn't a reminder of simpler times for me, but it was a reminder of simpler times for this property. Where, you know, I've, I've been trying to get back into the X-Men, I, I'm still buying, I'm buying all the X-Men books again. Um, not necessarily reading them all, I'm trying to, uh, it's just, what we have today isn't what we had then, um, and that is, like, my main takeaway today, is that we're just so far removed from this sort of, uh, X-Men, and it's, uh, not something I ever see coming back, unfortunately, uh, it seems like we're pushing further and further away from this style of story. Um, 
back, you know, reading a 1993, 1994 X-Men book, there were stakes there. Now it just doesn't feel like there's any stakes. Um, anybody could be brought back. Anybody can die. Anybody can get together. Anybody can break up. Anybody can turn good. Anybody can turn bad. I mean, Apocalypse is on the team, for Christ's sake. You know, it's... Mr. Sinister has a lab on their island. It's it's just so different from what this was. And uh, that is like... <laughs> that's like the most painful part at the moment. Um, not that what I've read so far has been bad... Uh, because I, I've enjoyed it for what it is in as much as it's uh, familiar. Um, the characters are familiar. Some of the language is familiar. Um, but it's not this. Uh, the, the stuff we have today and the stuff we've had for a long time, it isn't this, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, you see Scott and Gene now, and they might as well be different characters altogether. It's totally different to me. Um, very, very different. <laughs> but I'm not here to beg on current year comics. Let's not do that. Uh, let's control ourselves, or control myself. This issue, as I mentioned, really just informed the way I viewed this team and is sort of a like a seminal issue for me. It's the foundation of what the X-Men would be to me, moving forward, um, not just a group of people, not just a superhero team, but a family. And uh, again, I, I did not have the luxury of coming in under Claremont. So this issue was, you know, the watershed issue for me where, or literally, <laughs> at, at some point. But it was the issue where all the pieces fell to place. And I realized that I was with this team, with this family, with this franchise for the long haul. And outside of very, very few breaks, I have been with these with these characters ever since. Um, and I mean, this is 30 plus years at this point. So I uh, love this issue. If you haven't read this issue, do it. <laughs> I would recommend you do it. If you want to hold off until Thanksgiving, uh, that might make it a little bit more special. Um, if, you know, if anybody still owns a Ford Aerostuff van, you want to read it in the back with a, with a Game Boy Light or maybe your cell phone light, go for it. It might give you the full experience. Um, maybe eat a, uh, very dry McDonald's chicken sandwich afterwards, because I think that's what I did. because uh, I, I can't do more mayonnaise, so I always get it plain. Um, but yeah, wonderful, wonderful issue. Uh, the, it felt like everything came together here. Um, which, you know, it was intentional. And uh, Lobdell was famous for these sort of quiet issues that came off the heels of uh, crossovers or big event issues. He, he always gave the team an opportunity to breathe. And, uh, and I love that. That's definitely one of my favorite bits about the Lobdell run is those, you know, down-home issues, the lick-your-wounds issues, the, uh, the you know, let's... Let, let's get back up on our feet issues They were always just so well done And it showed that he had such a grasp For the characters here I mean I don't want to say that these were deep cuts Because they really weren't uh, The ones we got here uh, They were special cuts for sure But I mean if you're writing the X-Men I think you, you know about the Phoenix Saga <laughs> Or at least you should But it, this showed me that uh, Lobdell took this seriously And he did 
go back and he tried to make things fit, um, which is more than a lot of folks do, because back then there seemed to be rules about that. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about um, just the I mean, it had been so long since the X-Men had this downtime uh, in, a, in a large way, and for me, of course, it was the first time, so I didn't get to see Beast and Jubilee hanging out. I didn't, you know, and I don't know that they had up to this point, because Jubilee was still relatively new, but it was cool to see them together and sort of bonding, uh, even if Beast might have been a uh, surrogate Logan for her in this uh, in this particular issue. I just thought it was really cool, and I thought it was cool that Hank was uh, just having, like, this awesome, fun time trying to take her mind off of what had happened to Logan. They didn't ever, ever actually outright say that. But it's what I took away from it. Um, the professor at the end here. This is where I think there might be a little bit of contention uh, because he mentions he has reservations about uh, the engagement, and I think a lot of people's minds immediately go to that little nugget that Xavier had this weird crush on Jean. And I mean, there's an argument you can make for that, and certainly if you wanna if you wanna see it that way, it's there. But I don't think that's what this is. Uh, Lobdell's on record as saying he was never down with that concept, and uh, <laughs> and I'm happy about that because I don't know that kind of I don't know that kind of makes it just a little weird. I mean, it makes it very weird, but it makes so many things that have happened in the series um, lose their Im- meaningful impactness uh, because they're predicated in in like predation rather than. Um, Rather than an intrinsic sort of uh, desire to help her control her powers and, and better herself uh, in, in in her control, what I look at when I see Xavier withholding his reservations, um, I think I think people have a a way of making very very big decisions about their lives um, at inopportune moments um, as a way of instilling that they have control. I mean, there's that saying, you know, like, like, uh, don't make sweeping changes to your appearance after a breakup or don't, uh, you know, don't buy a brand new car after a certain event in your life. Don't make big, huge decisions um, based, you know, fueled on emotion. And uh, after reading or after Xavier gives this speech about how difficult the year was, seeing Scott and Jean make this huge decision right then and there, when they've had years and years and years where they could have gotten married, to do it now, I don't know if maybe he thinks this is a an attempt at asserting control or an attempt at uh, just controlling fate um, or telling fate to, you know, go screw off. I think that's my takeaway from his uh, withholding reservations. Uh, and, uh, I mean, uh, that's, that's food for thought, you know. It could very well be that he's, you know, got the hot pants for Gene still. I mean, who knows? But uh, <laughs> for me, I feel like there's a little bit more, something a little bit more cerebral to it, where he's seeing this as maybe reactionary and for the wrong reasons, or at least at this time, and maybe something they should, uh, they should devote a little bit more um, critical thought to. Again, I mean, you're welcome to disagree, you're welcome to agree. Uh, Either way, that's sort of my takeaway from Xavier's uh, deal.
Bishop as a fish out of water was a uh, it was a little char- a little bit of charm to it. Uh, it did feel like I mentioned it felt like it was Balky Bartakamis for a minute. Like it's like he doesn't know what a football is. There are no history books in the future. I mean, <laughs> I, are all the history books just about the X Men? And I'm well, I guess they usually play baseball, so maybe football would be foreign to him. But uh, uh, it was it was cute. I think it was it was. Uh, a nice little bit of dissonance there. Um, the Doctor Doom Scarecrow was cute. Uh, just a, a wonderful issue. Um, uh, you know, everything was gold and yellow and orange. It very, it very much felt like Thanksgiving. It uh, very much felt like, you know, there was almost a crispness to the art um, where, you know, you could get a chill by looking at it. Um, more on the art, it is John Romita Jr. So if John Romita Jr. is something you like, you'll like this. If he's not, you probably won't. <laughs> it's not going to change your mind either way. Uh, Ramita Jr. is a, a bit of a comfort food for me, so I did enjoy it. And, uh, uh, you know, this might be the issue that made him comfort food for me. Um, that's possible. I, I, I never thought about it, but I guess that could be why I have such an affinity for his work, even today when it's pretty rough, uh, admittedly. But, uh yeah, I think that's probably all I got to say about this issue for now. Um, highly recommended. Definitely, if uh, if you haven't read this and you have any sort of interest in the X Men, uh, you do owe it to yourself to give it a shot. If you've read it and you haven't read it in many many years, maybe give it a go. Uh, it's definitely worth your time, even though I just spoiled it and uh, probably <laughs> probably destroyed it beyond repair at the you know almost two hours into this discussion, but definitely give it a look if you haven't. And if uh, you remember it fondly, uh, let me know. Let me know. I, I'd like to... I, I love hearing the stories of how... Uh, you know, of, of those particular stories that people regard fondly and the ones that stick with you uh, throughout your lives, uh, like this one has for me. So, uh yeah, you think, uh, I think that's probably all we got. We'll uh, send it to the horns one last time, and then uh, we'll close this one out. Alrighty, if you've made it this far, thank you so, so much. <laughs> I know this one was uh, perhaps a little bit more self-indulgent than usual, and that's, that's saying something for an episode of uh, my show. Uh, <laughs> thank you for hanging out. Um, what kind of closing do we have today? Uh... Links, I can give links uh, If you want to get a hold of me uh, You can do so at Ace Comics on Twitter Or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com You can find my daily blog At ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com Currently uh, talking about Things like Marvel Comics Presents New Talent Showcase at DC uh, A whole bunch of weird and wonderful things uh, Over there uh, ChrisAndReggie.Podbean.com You can find the archives Which hopefully I'll be able to figure out How to get them into seasons pretty soon Make it easier to read uh, the archives are also live at Chris's on Infinite Earths right now, um, so you'll be able to find any episode you want. Um, I'm trying to figure out ways to make that a little bit more accessible because I do realize there is a lot of audio there. And, uh, and you know, sometimes when you're overwhelmed with content, you choose not to listen to any of it. I know that's <laughs> situations I've been in in the past. Um, still have Chris and Reggie pins, the enamel pins. If you're interested in getting a pin, just uh, reach out and I'll get one to you. I've sent out probably a half dozen at this point, and everybody's gotten them, and uh, they've sent me pictures of uh, of where they're keeping them, and it's been really nice to see uh, people remember the show and uh, 
and, and you know, keep it alive uh, in, you know, in their memory. It's great. Um, in a couple of weeks, we will have the final episode of Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill. If anybody has any interest in being part of that, either by maybe sending me something to read or recording a little bit of audio and sending it to me or just uh, getting in touch with me, please do so. Uh, again, Ace Comics on Twitter, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com by email. Uh, any which way you can find me, I would definitely appreciate uh, hearing anything anybody has to say about the show. But I think that's about all the time I'll take up from you this time. Um, one last time, thank you so, so much for listening. Uh, you don't know what it means to me. Um, I'm also very lonely, so uh, if you want to tell me what you think, please do. <laughs> I think that's all we got. So uh, till next time, I will uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya.